Let's start with reading 2 Kings 6. And we're going to take this in stages of reading, in, uh, reading today. And the first thing we need to look at is, is the plight of Samaria. The plight of Samaria. And I'm reading from 2 Kings 6, 24 to 29. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on a wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman, <coughs> pointing to a person, obviously, said to me, give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So he boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give me your son <coughs> that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. We are introduced into this terrible situation of the city of Samaria. The invading army with the Syrians had been in conflict with the nation of Israel several times. Ben-Hadad was a, a name that was given to several kings, and this was probably Ben-Hadad II. And it is not the first time that Samaria had been besieged by Ben-Hadad. And scholars think it was both Ben-Hadad II in 1 Kings 20 and again in 2 Kings 6. The previous time, King Ahab listened to the council of the elders and an unnamed prophet, and they said, go out um, and you will have victory. And, and Ahab did that. He went out and he had victory, and he defeated the Syrians, and he had Ben-Hadad in hand and made a covenant with him to return land and let him go. And, and Ahab was condemned by this unnamed prophet for letting Ben-Hadad go. Coming back to the siege, this siege probably resulted in a great famine in the city of, of Samaria. And food became so expensive that the undesirable part of an unclean animal was sold for a ridiculous amount of money. Nobody would eat a donkey's, donkey's head. Nobody would eat anybody's head. Well, I guess we do like walkie-talkies in this country. But the donkey was an unclean animal, and to go for the head in desperation, gave us some sense of the plight. But that was not all, was it? It resulted in people resorting to cannibalism and deceit. And sadly, this was not an uncommon event in sieges. So this was the terrible situation of Samaria. And then we have this results in the promise of Jehoram, who was the king of that time, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall. And when the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body, beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of um, Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. And I think there is a play on the son aspect and on the head aspect. And this was King Jehoram, and we read in, in 2 Kings 3, verse 1 to 3, that in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. 
for he put away the pillar of bulb that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. This was an evil king. And this king was in grief and mourning, displayed by the sackcloth, yet concealed by normal clothing. And the whole idea of wearing sackcloth was to display to everyone the state of mourning and anxiety and stress inwardly. And yet he was wearing it underneath everything. And we see in 2 Kings 6, 27, where he says, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I? He knows that he is unable to bring about any sort of redemption. And here again, he says that. And what he does now is he shifts the blame. He shifts the blame. He says, I'm going to take this out on Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and take from him his head. And here's my promise that he will die. His response in this plight of, this, of Samaria is to promise that Elisha is going to die because somehow he is to be. And this leads to the promise of Elisha. And we read in, in 2 Kings 6.32-7.2, Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent, um, has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, um, should, should make the windows in heaven, how can this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so Elisha is sitting with the elders, and it is a picture of the one. It is a picture of one of the elders being received, or not being receiving instruction from Elisha. They were sitting in such a way that Elisha was instructing and teaching and, and educating them. The prophet was doing what the prophet needed to do was to speak to the leadership. And Elisha knew the reason for the messenger and for the king coming, and says. Behold, the man is coming to kill me. And he gives this incredible prophecy of a reversal of fortunes. And this messenger attributed the current plight to God. And let's be honest, it's not inconceivable. God had at times for the nation of Israel put them in places because of not only the sins and the evil of their king, but also because the people accepted it. So it was not inconceivable that God allowed Ben-Hadad to come back. <clears throat> and what this messenger therefore does is he expresses an unbelief in waiting for God. And Elisha then promises and prophesies two things. He says, the food situation will change. 
And when the, the captain of the king says, how can this be? He says, you will see it, but you will not partake of it. The situation then shifts to the people God used to rescue. And we see this in 2 Kings 7 verse 5, 3 to 8. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the, to the gate. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. <clears throat> and if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. Great logic there. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent, carried off things from it, and went and hid them. And so this, the scene changes from the tension in the city to the terrible situation of these four men. And these four men were lepers. They were outcasts of society. Now, this is not probably the, the, the leprosy that we understand today, but it was an external, sin, uh, external skin condition. And again, I'm not sure that there is uh, not a play on how Jehoram hides his sackcloth, whereas these four men display for all the world their terrible condition. And in desperation, they go to the camp of the Syrians saying, look, chaps, we're only going to die. I mean, like, this is an, an inevitable reality for us if we don't do something. So let's go over there. Maybe they're just going to hasten our death, which is, you know, not a bad thing for us at the moment. And part of the, the, the reason for the story is that the Syrians did not seem to have the same view of leprosy. <clears throat> Why do we say that? Because Naaman in 2 Kings 5, still held the position of authority even though he had leprosy. So they kind of potentially are thinking, listen, we go in there, we die. We stay in here, we die. We go there. Well, maybe they're going to take pity on us. And maybe they'll take pity on us because Naaman had leprosy and he still was in a position of authority. Well, either way, we go there. At best, we get some food. At worst, we die. And isn't that often our thoughts? At best, we will get this. And at worst, and when we get to a situation, we see that God in his generosity says, no, that's not the best. God used the coming of the lepers to incite fear in the Syrians. And that resulted in them fleeing. Reminds me of a joke. You know, there we were, five against 500. And boy, did we beat those five up. Granted, that's a bad joke, I know. Uh, and the lepers were quick to take advantage both of the food and of the wealth. 
They were quick to take advantage of both food and wealth. And this then leads to the proclamation of good news. Then they said to one another, what we are doing, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. This is a day of good news. What does the gospel mean? Good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them. We came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and was told within the king's household. Sorry, Chris, do you mind changing the slides for me as I go? It's a little bit too small for me to see there. And the king rose to the night in the night and said to his servants, I will tell what the Syrians have done to us. I will, sorry, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and go into the city, kind of like Troy. And one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who are already perishing. Let us send and see. So they took two horses, horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. <clears throat> there is this realization, this epiphany, this awareness by the lepers as they are gluttoning themselves, that this is not right. The goodness of God was not meant for them alone. They needed to share this good news. And they realized that they were in error of not sharing, and then there was an understanding of guilt that would come upon them. They would be guilty. It was morally wrong for them to be taking all of this while God had rescued the city of Samaria, and if they kept it for themselves, they would be guilty. And again, contrast this with Gehazi in 2 Kings 5, verse 15 and 27. When, when Elisha, Elisha tells Naaman the instructions to get freed, what does Gehazi do afterwards? He goes and says, well, I think I need to profit on this. And here are these four lepers, social outcasts, rejected by the city of Samaria, according to the will of God are used by God to bring such a change of fortune. And they realize this is good news. And we will be morally wrong if we do not share it. Once they share it, there is a possibly an understandable doubt of the reality of it. And so what the king does is he sends two people, two horsemen, as far as Jordan, which is approximately 65 kilometers away, to say, just go and make sure. This was good news indeed. And this leads to God's provision and punishment. 
2 Kings 7 verse 16 to 20 says, Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge over the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seers of barley shall be sold for a shekel and two seers and a seer of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gates of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, how, sorry, could such a thing be? And he had answered, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. And this good news results in joy and pandemonium. God has provided. The prices of food dropped because there was now all of a sudden an incredible surplus. And the king sought to take advantage by sending up the captain to oversee everything. And all of this brought about God punishing the captain by having him trampled. So I want to reflect on this by asking a few questions. First of all, do you understand the plight that the world is in? I don't think it's really that hard for us to to look at and see that we live in a broken world. There are joys, great joys. There is an incredible degree of brokenness corruption, of evil, of wickedness. And we here, comfortable in Northcliffe, may not have the extreme situations of famine. But it's not a pretty place, is it? Humanity is in a place of desperate need for rescue. I, I, I was privy to <clears throat> overseeing a, a conversation between, um, uh, I worked in a restaurant and the guy who owned it, um, he was wealthy, exceptionally wealthy. He had a couple of different restaurants um, and he had a conversation with a person who used to work with him and this person found Jesus and became this evangelist and was you know, all about talking to people about Jesus. And, and this, 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 this man, this, this boss that I, I worked for, um, he said to this, this evangelist, he says, like, why, why do I need God? Put all the money in the world. And the oak was wealthy. Why, why do I need God? Because underlying is this assumption that money can solve problems. And money keeps the famine outside of our household. So that we can live in a degree of comfort while we might shed a tear for people around us. That's actually not the way to think. The way to think is that this is a broken, broken world. And it affects us. So do you understand the plight that this world is in? If you understand this plight, are you taking ownership for your own contribution to this world's broken? The picture of Jehoram is instructive to us. He was an evil and wicked king. He sought 
to hide his mourning, to conceal it. And then he tried to shift blame onto Elisha. Now, not all the, the plight that we face is due to our own sin, but folks, you and I play a role in contributing to the brokenness of the world and people around us. You and I are responsible, not for the entirety, but we play a role. I play a role. You play a role. Are you taking ownership of that? Are you looking for somebody to rescue you from yourself? Or are we just trying to keep our own affairs in order and look at everyone else and go, there's corruption out there. And let's be honest, in South Africa, we have every opportunity to point at the corruption of everyone else. We just have to stop at a, a red robot or a green robot or a whatever robot and see people use traffic rules as if they are mere suggestions on, on, on Chappie's packets. How dare that person, but the moment it's convenient for us, we do the same. Are you taking into account your own contribution to the plight of this world? And are you therefore desperate to say, God, rescue me. Rescue me, God. Every single day I want to live in a way that you are rescuing me. Are we delighting in what God has already provided? The story before us is, is one of Elisha prophesying that God will provide. We live with the cross as a historical reality. It's been done. God has provided and God has saved. We do not have to live with the anxiety of, man, I'm contributing to the mess of the world. What hope is there for me? I don't know if there's hope. God has provided. And God is calling us to, to go to Jesus and to receive from Jesus because it has been done. It is finished. And I want to say this, if you look at your own sin and go, I don't know if God will accept me. I say this with as much love as I possibly can. That is arrogance. Because Christ is infinite and you are finite. Your sin is finite and Christ's magnificence is infinite. And Christ's love is infinite and Christ's grace is infinite. It has been finished. We do not have to live with anxiety of, will I find acceptance? It's been done. And we can therefore live knowing that God has saved, God has provided, and also that God is continually providing. He's not going to stop at Jesus and say, oh, that's the last of my, my, my treasure. No. Because he's given so much, he will give that much more. Are you delighting in what God has provided? Are you celebrating this? Are you, are you finding your confidence in life? Are you basing your reality on it? Are you confident in the sufficiency of God's provision? Not only in Christ, but in all things. And then finally, are you sharing your good news? 
Not everyone is called to be in the streets sharing the gospel. Let's acknowledge that. Everyone is called to pray. Are you praying for people? Everyone is called to to have a reason and to be able to express that reason for the hope that they have. Are you ready to share with people why in the midst of load shedding, in the midst of winter, in the midst of chaos on the roads, in the midst of uh, rising food prices, are you ready to share, folks? I have hope because of Jesus. Are you ready to share? And everyone is called to be part of the great commission of making disciples. However that looks, whatever form that takes, we are here to make disciples of all nations. Are you ready? And are you part of that? And are you doing that? Because as the leper said, it is not right for us in the view of what God has done, in the view of this good news, that we keep it for ourselves. I want to share a story, and I, I don't know the details exactly. Gavin probably might. Um, I think it was uh, uh, Hudson Taylor. I think it was Hudson Taylor who was, was, had a clear, clear uh, conviction that God was calling to China. And he went to China, and he shared the gospel with many, many, many people, and he had varying degrees of success. But one story that I know of was, that he was sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with this Chinese person. And he was saying how great it is. And this Chinese person couldn't believe the good news, the the great news that God came in flesh to save and die for him. And he asked, and he said, well, this is just amazing. I mean, this is fantastic. When did this happen? 50 years ago? 150, I mean, this is such great news. How long did it take to get us to get that news from, from where it happened to here. Was it 150 years? And Hudson Taylor said, no, it happened about 1,800 years ago. And the man was flabbergasted. Like, how? How did it take so long for the gospel to get from there to here? Before I close, it is one thing for me to, and I'm not trying to put guilt onto you. I'm trying to call you to a holy joy and responsibility and a delight. Your life will make the most sense when you are seeking after the things of God. This is not about guilt. This is about finding value and joy in pursuing the things of God. We do need to acknowledge the plight of the world. And from a place of joy, share the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to close off on what should be a well-known passage, um, which is Romans 10, verse 14 to 17. And we are going to read this as a a, a thing of reflection, a, a passage of reflection. And I want you to think about this as we go our ways. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this story in the Old Testament that is so instructive to us about the joy of trusting in you. To know that in the midst of our own brokenness, our own wickedness, we can call to you and know that you are the faithful God who provides. And, and to know that as we sit listening to this Old Testament story, we, we read it through the filter of the cross and know that you have already provided for us. May we take heed of the un undoubt and uncertainty and the unbelief of both Jehoram and his captain. Through the Spirit, may you cause us to have such a degree of confidence in the fullness of Jesus on the cross that we are always led to trust and dependence. And finally, Father, I ask that you would stir us all up wherever we are in whatever life space we're in, whatever situation we're in, that we may pray for the people who do not know Jesus, that we may be ready to share the reason for our, our own hope, and that we may find a way to be part of the celebration of the gospel to, to people who have never heard. May we indeed become the beautiful feet that are part of the process of preaching the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. What a beautiful life. Amen.